Hello, it's Tuesday 1st of August. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be rounding up a busy July by assessing the top eight travel and talking points from the seventh month of 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So July was another busy month along Southeast Asia's road to a travel and tourism recovery. Hannah and I have put together a list of July's top eight travel talking points, which will take us from Thailand to Singapore, Bali to Kuala Lumpur, and China to Saudi Arabia. So Hannah, where shall we start? I guess the first place really is to have a look at the tourist arrivals and, and the latest figures. Yeah, I think that's always a good place to to catch up, isn't it? And, and assess that kind of progress as to where we are um, and who's doing slightly better and who's lagging behind. Um, so we've had pretty much the majority of Southeast Asia's first half 2023 numbers. It's, it's no surprise, I'm sure everybody can guess who's number one in terms of absolute numbers is Thailand, of course. Um, so they haven't really officially announced, you know, as of this morning, so it's the 1st of August, normally these things tend to start coming out a little bit later. Um, but as of the 25th of June, it had welcomed about 12.46 million international travellers. As of mid-July, it had welcomed about 14 million. So, you know, we, we, can, we can guess they were around, you know, just, just under 13 million for the first half of 2023. And of course, you know, they are aiming for this 25 to 30 million arrivals for the full year for 2023. So they're, they're, they're kind of on track there, you know, if, if they're tracking and if you, and we'll, we'll talk about China later, but if, you know, the number of Chinese travelers increases, I think they could comfortably hit that. And, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical about Thailand um, and their big targets, but this one seems to be realistic as we are the 1st of August. Um, Singapore is the next one. And, you know, so we're talking about Thailand's just under 13 million. Singapore is half, that is 6.2 million. And so you can see there's such a massive difference actually between Thailand, who's just this forerunner of everybody else and the other countries. So we've got Singapore at about 6.2 million. Vietnam hit about 5.5 million. Cambodia, 2.57 million. Laos, 1.7 million. And Indonesia didn't release their, their first half numbers yet, uh, but their January to May was was about 4.12. So we could say perhaps they're, they're hitting about that 5 million. So it's, you know, Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, Cambodia, Laos is where you'd expect it to be. But it is still far from the 2019 numbers, really. So I think it's, you know, I, I keep having this debate, you know, are we still in recovery mode? I think we really are still, aren't we, Gary? For sure. I mean, you, you look at those figures. Um, as you say, the, the Thailand f- target for the year is around about, they say, 25 to 30 million, somewhere between it is where they're, they're, they're looking at now. And as you say, a lot of that will depend on uh, the Chinese outbound recovery for the rest of the year. But, you know, if, if they hit 30 million for the full year, uh, that compares to 39.9 million in 2019. Um, you know, that's not so bad. But Singapore there, 6.2 million, that seems very, very low, particularly when you look at, you know, the, the cost of traveling to Singapore at the moment, the hotel rates, they're, they're very, very high. And it's not just because of the number of visitors, it's simply the, the yields on the hotels. Indonesia is pretty low there, 4.12. I thought nothing from Malaysia yet, though. We don't have those figures, right? No, they've the furthest they've got so far, I think, is Q1. 
2023, but Malaysia are always uh, infamously behind <laughs> in terms of releasing the stats. So they're a bit of a dark horse. We don't quite know how they are they are playing right now. I would guess around the Singapore, Vietnam, six, five million, but that's best guess, I think. Yeah, Vietnam's coming up on the rails. It started really, really slowly, didn't it? You've got their 5.5 million for the first half year. I think they said for July, it's the first month to hit more than a million in a single month during July. Um, so things are improving there. But, you know, overall, those figures, and you, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Are we still in recovery? I mean, I think you'd have to say absolutely so, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's something, you know, it, you know, this this weekly report I write, I've, I changed it from impact of COVID-19 to, you know, the recovery of Southeast Asian tourism industry. And someone challenged me last week and said, well, maybe you need to change the title. I don't think so yet. I <laughs> think, unfortunately, it's still going to be recovery until well into 2024 at this rate. Uh, and beyond, I would I would say it's going to stretch into 2025. Yeah, I was trying to keep things light, Gary, but probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of that is down to the second um, news point, which is about where we are in terms of air capacity, right, Gary? Yeah. So just going back to that previous point, Hannah, just before we go on to the, the air capacity, when we talk about recovery, I mean, we're talking about total tourism numbers. Now, the, mm. the spending is is increasing because we know that inflation has had an impact and people are spending more. I think because it's more expensive to travel. Um, so when we're talking about the full recovery heading into 20, late 2024, 2025, we're talking mostly about the uh, the actual visitor arrivals. True, that that is true. Yeah, and like we have seen, like you say, you know that that spend has increased. How long that will go on for? You know, I I don't know. Inflation is set to decrease, uh, and uh, across the region. Will people still be able to stand withstand these these high prices? You know, especially if we're looking at Singapore. You know, I was just looking for a room night for Singapore for next week and was amazed by the price of a a, a windowless three star hotel room <laughs> out towards the you know away from the the main city center. How much that cost? Are people still going to be prepared to pay that as we're going into? You know, 2024, when travel isn't quite the new and shiny thing that it has been for 2023 and the end of 2022, I don't know. Watch this space. I agree with you. It's one, it's one of the great unknowns, isn't it? I think in, in you go back to the US and, and maybe last year, this time last year, some of the analysts were saying that, you know, that, that pent-up demand, that, that real release of pent-up demand was going to start slowing uh, in the second quarter of this year. It doesn't really seem to have happened. So, you know, it, maybe, you know, we're, we're accepting that this is the new reality, but at the same time, uh, it's a new reality that certainly is more expensive and that is going to weigh on people's ability uh, and their budgeting for travel for sure going forward. Mm -hmm. um, but let's have a look at air capacity, Hannah. Some interesting figures from uh, OAG and Southeast Asia's uh, air capacity in July this year. Leading the way, no surprise, is Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia, obviously, is by far the biggest country in the region, but it makes up 28% um, of the region's air capacity. Uh, it's the only country with more than 10 and a half or more than 10 million seats this month available on domestic and international routes. Uh, that's more than double um, Malaysia and Philippines, which neither uh, reach 5 million seats. Second is uh, Vietnam, which is uh, seven around 7 million seats uh, in July. And then Thailand, which is uh, just over 6 million. Um, and I thought uh, one of the interesting aspects from this, Hannah, uh, is looking at the um, the airlines, which are the largest airlines in the region at the moment. So the top four airlines in the region, what would you say they would be, Hannah? Ooh, uh, Lion Air, 
I think has to be number one. Lioness number one. Yeah. Yeah. Air Asia's got to be in there, don't they? Um, so that's number four. Number four. Who's going to be number two and number three? Then we've got Lion. I tell you, this surprised me. I wouldn't have. Vietjet. Vietjet in there. Okay, Vietjet's number three. Okay. Oh, number two, and it surprised you. Okay. Oh, thinking, what could it be? Maybe Vietnam or Thailand. Yeah, Vietnam Airlines. So no, Lion Air is number is one. It? Vietnam Airlines is number two. Vietjet number three. So two Vietnam Vietnamese mm. airlines in the top three. Air Asia number four. Cebu Pacific is number five. And then completing the top ten, you have Batik Air, Thai Air Asia, uh, Singapore Airlines, Philippine Airlines, and CityLink. So uh, yeah, I would have got Lion Air and I would have got Air Asia being in the top four. Um, but I was surprised at Vietnam Airlines being number two. Yeah, that, that did surprise me. I guess it must just be the number of domestic routes that they're flying, right? It, I don't think that's, I mean, I, I would presume it's not so much on the international, but more on the um, domestic. But yeah, it's huge. You, like like you said, it's it's always surprising, I think. It's surprising, but it's not at the same time how, how large a percentage Indonesia makes up of that whole region, 28%. Um, but it makes complete sense when you think about the population being, what, 280 million people on all of those islands that they need to to fly to. I mean, in terms of, you know, how, how does that compare overall capacity for July versus July 2019? Um, well, the good news is that it's now 15% below where it was in July 2019. So, you know, that's step by step by step. We we are getting there. What's the difference between domestic and international? Well, domestic is down just 13%, whereas international is down 17%. So, of course, there is still that big difference. Domestic is still leading the way in terms of recovery. But overall, if we look at international capacity versus, you know, July 2023 versus July 2019, there's actually been a 90% growth. <laughs> so that that's you know, that putting back that international capacity has been driving it, but it is it's still domestic. I think really that is giving Southeast Asia just that 15% below 2019 levels. Yeah, I, I would agree, Hannah. Those are good stats. And just uh, following up on the stat you, that we discussed there about Indonesia making up 28% of the entire regional capacity of airlines in July, 28%. Vietnam is second, 19%, 1.9. And Thailand is third with 17%. So if you add those three figures together, my math is not particularly great, but I think that's 64% of the region's entire capacity, almost two-thirds, is from those three markets. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Um, so you can see those are the big markets. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at Indonesia, like we were just saying, their international arrivals, they're so much lower than Thailand's. Um, so it really is there a lot down to all of those domestic flights that Indonesia is flying right now. So, of course, the other huge factor that plays into a recovery. So one, of course, is air capacity and you need people to get in. You need people to travel around the region. But the other one is China. So where are we, Gary? Are we getting any closer with Chinese travelers returning? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's, uh, you know, we're now almost seven months since China started to reopen on the 8th of January, generally accepted that the recovery took a lot longer than perhaps was expected. Um, the air capacity was very, very slow to recover. I think we've said this before that when China did start to reopen at the beginning of 
January, it only had less than 10% of its international air capacity running. So it was very, very slow. At the moment, it's actually only up to just over 50%. That's the overall figure. So, you know, you're seeing a lot of articles at the moment rushing to judgment about China's recovery into Southeast Asia while it's, you know, not helping some of the key markets. Um, but it is actually helping some of the actual key markets. So you look at where the uh, air capacity is being directed to. And those are markets like South Korea, uh, Japan, and Thailand, you know, where you were expecting uh, demand from Chinese tourists to, to really kick hold. We were talking there, Hannah, about um, international and domestic capacity uh, in Southeast Asia. And if you compare those figures with China, it's quite interesting. If you go back to July 2019, so pre-pandemic, four years ago, 87.9% of air capacity in China was domestic, 12.1% was international. Bring that forward to this uh, the month that we've just finished, July 2023, 94.4% of capacity was domestic and only 5.6% was international. So I think that shows you um, just how the international uh, outbound flights from China are increasing. Uh, we'll certainly see that over the next two or three months. We've seen that over the summer uh, for the summer holidays and certainly up to the October holiday and then towards the end of the year. But, you know, the actual percentage of the whole market still largely, largely driven by the domestic sector. Yeah, that's really interesting, Gary. I mean, I've seen all of these articles too. I think it's, it's one of the most popular <laughs> uh, themes that journalists like to uh, cover at the minute, isn't it? Like the Chi number of Chinese tourists or the lack of Chinese tourists coming into Southeast Asia. And, you know, we all knew it was going to be a process. I, I'm not really sure why people are so surprised that the numbers are not flooding in because... It's something obvious. We, we have seen this happen across all of the markets. It takes time to reopen. It takes time to build back that infrastructure, um, reopen flight routes, um, everything else. It, it is going to be a process. What do you think the chances are for Golden Week, Gary? Is that looking promising for international travel? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because the air capacity is rising into some of the markets that we would see. It may take a little bit of a dip after the summer holidays uh, in September, but, you know, it'll, it'll pick back up again for October. I think one of the issues in terms of forecasting Golden Week is that the booking windows are so short now that the, the forward bookings for October are not quite as strong as they would have been four years ago. But I, I think it will be a pretty interesting Golden Week this year. I think we will see a, a, a real um, surge of travelers into Asia-Pacific nations, not just Southeast Asia, but uh, you know the key markets like Japan and South Korea. And I think that's just going back to the statistics from OEG as well, which are quite interesting. Nine of the top 10 outbound markets in terms of air capacity from China in July were in Asia-Pacific. Now, four of those, I think, were in our region. So Thailand, uh, Singapore, Vietnam, and Malaysia. So nine of the top 10 markets were Asia-Pacific, but then only four of the next uh, 10, so from 11 to 20 in terms of the ranking, um, were Asia-Pacific markets. So the longer-haul markets like the UK, Australia, uh, Germany, Italy, are starting to see more travelers. And I think, you know, ahead of the, the Golden Week, we will see a bit more of a diversity in outbound travel from China. But I think the majority of it for this year is going to be in Asia-Pacific. Yeah, I mean, I think Southeast Asia has got that still that advantage card, doesn't it, in, in the fact that China still has those limits on tour group destinations, whereas most of the Southeast Asian countries don't. So there's, they've got that going for them. They've got the fact that, like you say, there's a lot more capacity here as well in terms of flight routes, which is going to help pricing. Um, and you've got, you know, Russian airspace still being closed 
to many European airlines, which makes getting over to Europe that much more difficult. So, you know, this is still this this is the year, if you like, for Southeast Asia to really capitalize on all of those factors and try and draw Chinese tourists here because as some of these obstacles are removed, it's going to get easier and easier to travel across to Europe and to other long haul markets. Yeah, the, the 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 tour group travel is is a really interesting aspect because you know some of the key markets, um, even in Asia Pacific, Japan and Australia, two that, that stand out, South Korea. You know, they're not yet allowed to accept uh, tour groups from China. You know, will that ban be lifted ahead of the the Golden Week? It's possible. It's not certain, but it's certainly possible, and that will then help the airlines as well in terms of uh, setting their agendas, their schedules for that Golden Week. Um, it's it's really hard to to forecast whether that will happen, but. You know, in terms of the, the the boost that that would give to those markets, um, they'll certainly be lobbying for that. I would expect. Yeah, I'm sure. So let's move then from China back over to the region to Southeast Asia and over to Bali. Um, so I think on our June round, uh, we were we were talking about the Bali tourist fee. It, it's such a I would say it's a big story. It's it's one of these stories that is a story and it isn't a story in that, yes, you know, the, the Bali governor has said, has set out his intention to charge this 150,000 Indonesian rupiah tourist fee. So that's about $10 um, and is saying that it will be implemented um, from 2024. But, you know, it's still far from law yet. It's still far from figuring out the implementation. If you think about it, this was where, you know, we've, we've been talking about Thailand's 300 baht tourism fee. I don't know, it feels like years um, now. And every time it falls down is at that implementation stage. And how do you get that all aligned? Are you charging up via airlines? Bali's one seems to be, I saw at one point it being mentioned that it would only be for once during their trip when they arrive into Bali. But what happens if they arrive into Bali, go somewhere else and come back to Bali? How do you prove that that's one trip? There, there just seem to be a lot of loopholes and a lot of scenarios that will need to be finalized for this to really come off. Yeah, I, I, and you're right there. I think it's in terms of the payment, isn't it, and how this is collected in the old days. You know, Bali used to have a, a, a fee and it was collected payment at the airport, wasn't it? You, you paid it on arrival. Um, you know, with, with the current issues about... Uh, capacity and if capacity is going to increase will people uh, you know will it increase delays is there the handling capacity to actually be able to manage that airports anymore um, you know and is it simply just easier to to collect it electronically if so you still got it as you said there Hannah you've got to have other processes in place to ensure not only the payment is collected and verified um, but if people are coming back once or twice that they can also be assured that you know they're not gonna have to pay uh, a second fee you know, it's kind of interesting. Technology should make it easier, but at times you wonder if it's actually making it harder. Yeah, for sure. I think in this case, it it is right. It's just that whole how do you how do you do it? Um, so yeah, I mean, the planned implementation date is twenty twenty four. Like we said, it's still not you know been finalized. Even what this fee is really going towards is not super clear either. You know, it's been talking about sustainability, um, preservation of customs. What does that actually mean? And infrastructure. They, I mean, the, the governor then said that it was going to be used to build more infrastructure, which comes to a point we'll be talking about in a moment. <laughs> yeah. The coordinating minister of maritime affairs and investment said he'd like it to be spent on solving Bali's waste problem. So yeah, will it be implemented? How will it be implemented? Or what will that fee be used for? So many questions. 
Um, and we've just seen, I just feel like history is repeating. <laughs> Having seen all of these questions, you know, in Thailand around this 300 baht fee, and now it's being thrown to, to Bali. Maybe Bali will have better luck with it, and uh, there will be something on the, the 1st of January 2024. Mm, but I I would have my doubts, I think, right now, having seen the, the trouble Thailand's been in trying to do this. Yeah, watch this space again. Yes. So Thailand, which I was just talking about, um, one of the more interesting stories, of course, we were talking about Thailand has this huge number of uh, international arrivals compared to the rest of the region. But what kind of caught our eye was a more interesting um, stat when it comes to Japan, Gary. Yeah, so the, the media has been reporting this last week or so about a tourism deficit. Thailand has a tourism deficit with Japan for the first time. Uh, so in the first half of this year, almost 500,000, 497,700 Thais visited Japan, which shows you uh, just how much pent-up demand there is to travel to Japan now that it opened. Remember, it just it opened just towards the end of last year. So this year is the first full year that people can visit Japan as tourists. Um, and that compares to a lot lower figure, 326,347 Japanese visitors to Thailand this year. Now, you know, Japan is normally one of Thailand's top markets. Um, the outbound market, as we know from Japan, has been very, very slow particularly in the first half of the year, the, the outbound figures were way, way down than they were on, on 2019. A, a whole number of reasons for that. We probably don't need to go into those. But it's quite interesting that suddenly Thailand is now talking about the fact that one of its key markets isn't performing. Uh, China hasn't really yet performed to its expectations, though it probably will in the second half of the year. And it's looking to a lot of these other markets, Middle East, Japan, you know, Central Asia as well, as well as uh, its, its neighboring markets, um, really to, to, to meet that, that shortfall in its expectations. But, you know, Japan as, a, as an outbound market has been one of the drivers, hasn't it, over the past 10 years of regional tourism. But it has been slow this year. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it has been, um, like you said, for, for many, many reasons, a lot slower. And, you know, it, when you compare to many of the European markets who've returned to Southeast Asia are now hitting maybe 70 to 80% of pre-pandemic levels. Japan, I think, is still less than 50%, it's maybe 40 to 50%, um, depending on which country you're looking at. So it, it's, it's really much, much lower. But he said it's, it's interesting, and, and TAT always find a way, right? So they they are instead they, they said that they're pursuing a market diversification strategy, targeting um, they call it emerging markets in Europe like Poland, Czech Republic, Romania, Bulgaria, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Saudi Arabia as well. And we'll, we'll talk about Saudi Arabia in a, in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to overland travel really we know that southeast asia's first high-speed railway which will be in indonesia from jakarta to bandung is supposed to be inaugurated this month um, but there are some other interesting stories going on aren't there hannah um, and the one that i think we've talked about more recently is the the reanimation of the kuala lumpur to singapore high-speed railway which was cancelled what a couple of years ago now um, but it looks like that's back on the on the agenda it does yeah so i think that the government was uh, opening up interest and saw a lot of um, interest from different private companies, corporations interested in collaborating with that. And of course, you know, we, we've, we've talked about KL Singapore high-speed rail before on the show many times, I think, actually. And it's one of these on-again, off-again projects. But, you know, the KL to Singapore air route is one of the busiest routes um, in the world. 
Um, so in, in terms of that, you know, they're, they are not going to be short of people um, who would want to use it. Um, so it's it's interesting to see how that will play out. Will it come off for maybe this is the third time they're trying? Let's hope. Let's see. But there have been other high-speed railways um, and land transportation announcements in July as well. So we've seen a feasibility study being launched uh, for a high-speed railway, not really super high speed, but <laughs> um, medium speed, let's say, between Phnom Penh and Sihanoukville. Um, that could be potentially interesting. Um, and Bali and Jakarta provisional government signed an MOU for a proposed electric light railway um, from the airport to Bali's top tourist destinations. So that could be an interesting development as well. But, you know, like, like we always say, Gary, these big infrastructure projects always take a long time um, to to be thought through and then a long time for implementation. So I think we're, we're still far off being able to hop on the train to go to Singapore anytime soon. Yeah, and that Bali one is is quite interesting for a number of reasons. It's been on the agenda for a long time. They've been talking about having this electric light railway um, from the airport to some of the destinations, but you know, that will cause a lot of problems. One, the main reason they want to have it is because the traffic congestion in Bali has just got so bad uh, and the impact that's having of stagnant traffic on the air pollution also getting worse. Um, but you look at some of those roads and where they're actually built and they're pretty narrow. Um, actually, if you, if you start constructing a railway near those road routes, uh, it could just actually make the traffic even worse. So, you know, let's see how that one plays out. Let's hope that there is, there is a resolution there because a lot of people in Bali at the moment are being put off, I think, a little bit by the, by the nature, not just of the journey times that it's taking to get across the island, particularly in the south, of course, um, but also those issues around air pollution and, and traffic uh, accidents as well. Yeah, absolutely. So from infrastructure then and inbound markets to looking at outbound markets. And Southeast Asian outbound market seems to be pretty healthy right now. Um, so Tourism Australia has reported that demand from the region is slightly ahead of the curve. Um, Turkish Airlines recently has identified Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia as part of their top 10 target markets, who they think each should generate about 1 million visitors um, to visit Turkey each year. And of course, we had the Henley Passport Index 2023 results released, with Singapore taking the top spot, knocking off Japan, um, finally. Um, but it's so interesting because this huge, huge difference between Singapore at number one, Malaysia at number 11, and then the rest of Southeast Asia. So Thailand in the Henley Passport Index comes in at 65, Indonesia at 70, Philippines 75, Cambodia and Vietnam 83, Laos 88, and Myanmar number 90. Um, so there's a huge, huge disparity between Singapore and Malaysia who can travel to a lot of countries um, visa-free and the rest of the region. And you know, we've, we've heard through those interviews that we've had um, with Pauline um, at Asita in Indonesia, with Felice at Tradewinds in the Philippines, about just how these visa issues are impacting um, that demand and destination choice for outbound travel from those countries. Yeah, absolutely, and also uh, thereby impacting the, the the air routes and you know the the capacity from certain airlines because if it's taking group tours so long to get visas, then they're just not going to put the, the the planes on on in the air, are they? And uh, yeah, that, that's one of the things holding back the recovery in terms of visitor numbers, I would, I would think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and lastly, so we, we already hinted at this a couple of times, Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is 
it's a pretty hot market right now. You know, we've, we've talked, of course, India and China, that they are the desirables, but Saudi Arabia increasingly um, is coming into the spotlight. Um, so Thailand, particularly since they've, they've had this warming up of relations between the, the two countries, between Thailand and Saudi Arabia, um, they're now seeing this increasing number of Saudi Arabian visitors. Uh, I think they're aiming for about 150,000 this year, which, you know, okay, Yep, sounds a little, but they're even um, going to launch a promotion office in Riyadh um, to enhance that growth and to really focus on it. Yeah, and I, th- I think the interesting thing with uh, with Saudi Arabia, Hannah, is you, you, we, we've, we're looking at both inbound and outbound. You know, Saudi Arabia is investing in absolutely everything at the moment. It wants to eat, every, eat everybody's lunch in terms of travel and tourism. And a lot of this is more longer-term investment. But, you know, for example, if you look at, at China, you know, the, the Saudi, uh, the CEO of the Saudi Tourism Authority uh, was one of the first major figures in tourism to visit China when China reopened. They have these ambitions to draw uh, 3.9 million visitors from China annually uh, by 2030. So the impact there is of uh, how it could actually draw tourists away from Southeast Asia, not just Chinese or Indian, but also some Southeast Asian uh, visitors uh, to, to the Saudi Arabian market. So there's this inbound outbound um, tussle that's going to go on. We're only really seeing the very, very beginnings of this. But you know, every country in the region, I, I would think, is going to have to have a Saudi Arabia strategy, uh, not just to attract inbound tourists, but how it's going to um, deal with the impact of more visitors going to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, a, a large percentage of those travelers who are going to Saudi Arabia, at least from Southeast Asia, is for Umrah, is for pilgrimage. And there, you know, we can see Lion Air have added on more Umrah flights um, just in the last week. Garuda, um, we're now going to be operating 29 Umrah flights in September. That's actually up 70% year on year um, from those operated in 2022. Malaysia is trying to gear itself up in Sarawak as regional Umrah hubs as well. There's a whole business to be had really with, with Umrah that could also potentially benefit countries who are smart about it, like Malaysia trying to set themselves up as this regional Umrah hub, which would have, I think, you know, give the the tour participants before um, the, the kind of the, the training, the the orientation, if you like, about what they should expect from Umrah. And I guess try and get some of that spillover visitors as well to the country who would, you know, all fly into Malaysia, kind of go through this orientation and then go to Saudi Arabia. Um, so like you said, there's it is really a force to be reckoned with, I think, Saudi Arabia, like you said, both in terms of inbound and outbound. Um, and you can see that kind of coming in the region now. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the end of our top eight talking points from July. It's quite a, a global uh, edition this this month. I know particularly uh, across Asia Pacific and also into the Middle East as well. I guess that's uh, that kind of sets the scene of what we will be talking about going forward, that the regionalization of travel. We've said this many times that Asia Pacific is driving Asia Pacific's recovery. But there are, as you've just said there, some other key markets on the fringes, uh, which will have a really, really influential role to play this year and, and into the future. Absolutely. So that brings us to the end of the show for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back in two weeks' time to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond. 
see you then. Bye.